This episode of Art of the Score is proudly supported by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Head over to mso.com.au forward slash movies for more information on their upcoming season of live movie score presentations. Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 11, we explore the music from the 2007 film, There Will Be Blood, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and score by the great Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame. There Will Be Blood is widely regarded as one of the most important films of this century, and Greenwood's score not only captures the film's vast yet unforgiving landscapes, but its protagonist's descent into obsession and violence. And joining me on this journey through the oily bowels of the American West is writer, critic, university lecturer, and olive oil connoisseur, it's Dan Golding. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing good. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. It's definitely one of my favourite scores um, ever, actually, let alone of, of this century. I, I think it'll be a fascinating episode. I love the fact that we can use this century yeah. and it's not that long. No. I love that. Yeah, I, I want to do all sorts of, for the first time this century. Yeah. You know, <laughs> anyway. Um, but we've got, some, we've got some bad news, Dan. Mm, terrible. But followed by good news. Excellent. Do you want the bad news first? I'll, I'll take it. Because it will make no news. sense if I give you the good yeah, news. Oh, no, oh, yeah, okay. okay, okay. Okay, so bad news is mm-hmm. Nicholas Buck is not with us. Ah, I, damn. That, <laughs> just as we rehearsed, Dan, yeah. that was good. Good disappointment. Yeah. No, no. Um, Nick, unfortunately for fans of, of Nick Buck, um, he's uh, been a a legit conductor and, mm. and traveling around to a bunch of orchestras um, conducting some movies at the moment. So, unfortunately, Nick can't be with us. However, I have good news. Great. We good have, news. we've replaced Nick. <laughs> Didn't take us long. Yeah. And um, we are joined uh, by um, a really fantastic gentleman who has agreed to to sub in for Nick, and he is uh, the conductor, orchestrator, arranger, and all the way from the motherland. Dan, that excites me. <laughs> yeah. Is Hugh Brunt? How are you doing, Hugh? Very well, thank you. Yeah, for having me. Yeah, well, um, so Hugh, we, uh, you know, we, this particular episode is supported by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and that is because uh, the MSO is performing the score live to There Will Be Blood this weekend on the 5th of August. So if you're listening to this before the 5th, jump online, see if you can grab up a, it's almost sold out. In fact, it is sold out bar a few tickets that just went on sale today however you might get super lucky perhaps you're going along to there will mm. be blood on on saturday and and this is a great little primer so you know to sort of see what you're going to um or listen to what you're going to hear however hugh is down here conducting the melbourne symphony orchestra this week all the way from the uk and um hugh what can you tell us about yourself where do you what what's your your day job when you're not gallivanting around the planet uh, over in australia here conducting well, um, well, this is my first time to Australia, I should mention, so thanks a lot for, for having me, and I'm very happy to stand in for Nick as well. 
my day job is part of my day job is is co-running the London Contemporary Orchestra. And it was with the LCO that um, that I first performed There Will Be Blood back in 2014. So that was its world premiere screening, as it were. And um, since 2008, we've been playing Johnny Greenwood's music as part of our concert seasons. The very first piece was actually Popcorn Super Receiver, a string orchestra piece that's used quite heavily uh, in, in There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and as you say, I do a mixture of arranging and orchestrating alongside conducting the LCO and conducting with whoever else will have me. And you've also worked on some pretty exciting films relatively recently, haven't you? Yes, we were just talking a moment ago about Jed Kurzel, wonderful Australian composer who LCO has been working with since uh, his his first Michael Fassbender film, as I call it, because he's done quite a few of them, um, <laughs> which was Slow West. And then Macbeth, Assassin's Creed and Alien Covenant. And I think they, yeah, they do all star Michael Fassbender. Mm. There we go. Unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good luck, Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I thought that this would be a, a really fantastic opportunity to have with us one of the, I, w- I would say, one of the, the world experts on, mm. on this score. Absolutely. Not only have has Hugh performed this live a whole bunch of times, he's also pulled off an amazing trick, which is very unusual in, in my business. This is the first time I've really seen it is that we might talk about it a little bit as we go along. However, obviously, when a, an orchestra plays a soundtrack along to a film live, there has to be some way that the the orchestra stays in sync with mm. the picture. And normally that's done through a whole bunch of um, different mechanisms, um, both with a click track and with a, you know, the visual sort of syncs and, and different ways of doing that. However, Hugh pulls off a great trick by just knowing the score so well <laughs> and the movie so well that he doesn't need any of that stuff. Mm. And that's for the rookies. And he just uh, <laughs> makes it happen, you know, live on stage with absolutely no references other than just watching the film. It's mm, remarkable. How, how, Hugh? How do you do this? How does this happen? Well, as you say, it means, it means having to watch the film quite a few times. But of all the films to watch, I guess parts of this more than 100 times. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm quite happy that it's, <laughs> that it's this one. Mm. There, are, there are so many layers to it. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it, it really is true. The deeper you go into it, the, the more nuances you discover. And we just will be rehearsing very, very hard, meeting those sync points. I do my amount of preparation. I try and be clear for the orchestra and then hopefully everything just falls into place. Um, but what's what's nice about not having the safety harness of a, of a click track or um, time code is that, especially with so much of this music being quite romantic in a lot of senses, that we have the flexibility to, to allow the music to breathe very naturally. It would be very odd to try and do that with a click track or a time code. So... Um, it's a lot more preparation, but I think it really pays off. And hopefully for the audience, it, it's a more exciting experience because we're kind of on the edge of our seats. And yeah, this it's, is it's very, that live dynamic hopefully really should come through. Absolutely. I mean, there's no, there's no safety net on that's this. Right. And that's what I find these, these types of live performances so exciting is that it really does feel like there's a little bit of an element of danger with these sorts of shows. And personally, I enjoy shows that, have a little bit of danger. I enjoy the idea <laughs> that something could go wrong and and not playing it safe. And I think this is such a um, great uh, amount of that level of danger, but then that artistic element, which is we actually want the orchestra to be able to breathe. We want to be able to interpret it how you know best we can and um, how, how best you want and, and still be able to marry that up to the mm-hmm. original you know vision of, of Johnny Greenwood and, and um, the director and, and so on. So, yeah, it's... 
if you if you can ever catch this stuff, final plug for the MSO, Dan. Mm. I'm sorry. Head over to the website, mso.com.au forward slash movies and check out uh, all of the movies that are coming up, not only this weekend, but in the future and into next year and hopefully on and on and on forever. <laughs> so, uh, without further ado, Dan, do you want to talk us through some of the history of this film? Yeah. So, I guess in contrast to some of the other films we've looked at, I mean, this is probably the most recent film, I think, that we've done so yeah, far. It is, in, yeah, it is. In Art of the School. So, it's it's 10 years old now and it's, you know, uh, it's a, a really interesting film. It's adapted, well, uh, loosely adapted from an up to Upton Sinclair novel and he was a sort of journalist and novelist in the, the early 20th century and he wrote this novel called Oil! Exclamation mark. And, you know, it sort of tells a story, I think, of greed, paranoia, oil, oil barons in the same way that, that, that Oil! The, the novel does, but expands on that significantly really. And uh, I think Paul Thomas Anderson, who is the director, who made his name with sort of a lot of the crossover sort of indie successes of the 1990s, like Boogie Nights in particular was the, the, the really big successful film, and then Magnolia and then um, Punch Trunk Love. He plays with these characters who are kind of tragically greedy and self-centered and myopic and and kind of tortured across all of his films and there's probably no greater example than that in in there will be blood i mean you know equally as well this i mean it's it's a western in some ways it's set in the american west it's not your traditional gunslinging western but it's nonetheless a western uh and it explores in that sense the sort of foundation myths of america in a number of ways it it plays with this horatio alger myth horatio alger was a, a another novelist in the the 19th century who wrote all of these stories about young boys who you know the ultimate rags to riches story mm. Over and over and over again. He wrote the same book, you know, a hundred <laughs> times. Um, and it became known as the Horatio Alger myth. And that's one of obviously the defining myths of America where, you know, you can make it big if you are, you know, dedicated and hardworking enough. Yep. And certainly if so, a film like There Will Be Blood pulls that apart and sort of says, well, what does that do to people? What kind of horrible people is so driven to become so enormously successful? But of course, doing that set between you know sort of uh, i think the film opens in 1898 a lot of it takes place in the in the 20th century uh, early 20th century that sort of really formative time where america ceased to become sort of an ex colony that was sort of making its way through the world to becoming sort of more of a world power through the dueling forces of corporations and religion which the film really really plays with directly i think yeah i mean it's there's such a boiling down of the american mm. psyche with mm. that like you said with with big business and corporations battling that idea of uh, i was about to say spirituality but it's more just a straight up christian yep. you know values mm. and and so on and mm. and then really the the whole oil component being the the building of mm. america from yep. there you know mm. so yeah, it's sort of a, a great little um, continuation of that Western theme, which mm. we've discussed in a few episodes, the idea yeah. of the Western, but this one is certainly a continuation of that. And um, how does it fit in in terms of being this this easily the most dark mm. and violent film mm. that we have looked at? How does that fit in in terms of the timeline of, of Westerns? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, you'd have to say it's kind of a revisionist Western. I mean, it's quite, I mean, I think probably if our listeners listen to Dances with Wolves, the episode that we did on that, and then this one, I think there'd be some interesting comparison points because this film, like Dances with Wolves, deals with the closure of that sort of open frontier and that remaking of this sort of enormous open space into 
you know, future Walmart territory, right? Mm. And so certainly, you know, 1898, um, when the film opens, is already six years, I think, six, seven years. My math is not so good. After, what is it, 1893, that uh, Turner, who was an American historian, pl- proclaimed the frontier of closed and finished. Right. Yep. So already in, in a point of time where we're sort of getting to the to you know a point in American history where that, that myth of like just going out and finding your own plot of land is no longer possible. Mm. And so it's more like, well, how's it going to be carved up? Who's going to control it? What sort of values are we going to have in this environment? And of course, a movie like this really requires a very different score. And yep. certainly... Johnny Greenwood delivers on that. Mm. Do you guys want to um, jump in and, and talk about, you know, really maybe Hugh might be good to kick this off with a bit more of a broader overview with how, for instance, Johnny Greenwood's score here differs from a more traditional Hollywood, you know, whether we're talking John Williams or, or Goldsmith or, mm. or Horner, um, Hans Zimmer even, um, who would be a more, you know, recent and overused example. <laughs> you know, how does, how does this really differ in its construction? Well, I guess the first thing to say is it was it was quite a masterstroke on on the on the part of Paul Thomas Anderson to approach Greenwood in the first place to do this because I think he'd he'd heard Body Song, which was Greenwood's first uh, foray in writing for film as, as a um, feature documentary, and in fact, there's one one of those tracks is used in There Will Be Blood as well as some pre some other pre existing pieces such as Popcorn Super Receiver, which we'd already mentioned. I guess the, the colors, some of the techniques that he draws from the string orchestra are quite unconventional, not necessarily in an avant-garde contemporary classical music sense. Um, and we'll be talking about uh, citations such as Penderecki and uh, Zanakis later. But in a film score, quite, quite rare. And of course, there have been revolutionary film scores going back quite a few decades thinking of Jerry Goldsmith's score to Planet of the Apes but one is in terms of more recent scores it's hard to think of a more innovative bolder score than than There Will Be Blood so there's some some amazing technical colours that he that he draws from the strings there's also the inclusion of the On Martineau which is um Dan, you can correct me on this, but I think one of the very earliest electronic instruments originating around late 20s. So around the time, actually, that this film finishes up, finishes in 1927. So a sound very similar to theremin, but it's controlled with a small keyboard and a wire that's that's used to control the vibrato so it almost emulates the, the human voice so that pairing of on martinone strings is quite an unusual color um certainly in in film i believe greenwood's used the on martinone in a few radiohead records so yep. some listeners might be familiar with it um, and also listeners might be familiar with the you, you referenced it being similar to a theremin um a lot of listeners would be uh, familiar with the doctor who Yep. Theme song, yep. which used the theremin as the yeah. over the top there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And this, I, I really could be wrong on this, but the is the on Martino used for Elmer Bernstein's score on Ghostbusters? It is. Yep. Yeah. So that's also that that sort of bit. <laughs> Excuse my singing. Um, is uh, yeah. Once again, is that that on Martino and and it's a very unusual instrument, but it's used in this score really effectively. So yeah. mm. it even though it's supposed to mimic the the human voice, 
like you said, it's not a, a polyphonic instrument. It can only have one note at a time. There is something very otherworldly from it that's mm-hmm. sort of both familiar because it's a, even though it's an a electric instrument, it's an analog electric mm-hmm. instrument. And so there is a, what would you call it? A, it's like a warmth, almost yeah. like a humanity. Yeah, there is, there yeah. is a humanity in, in, in it. Um, however, it is also still at the end of the day electronic. So there is that otherworldly vibe to it. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's really interesting how this is used. Shall we listen to some music? Absolutely. What do you reckon, Dan? Where are we going to start with this one? Because we, we, we were talking before we pressed record on this that out of all of the scores that we've done so far, we've, we've discussed the main themes mm. and mm-hmm. you know how they're developed and how they are represented by different characters and, and mm. all this sort of stuff. But this score really doesn't do that, does it? No. It's a very different style. So, mm. so where do you want to start, Dan? Well, I think there's a number of sort of key different musical modes, I suppose, to this score. And I, 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 we, we might as well start with the the beginning i mean this this sort of uh, musical clusters that we get uh, early on in the film uh, and on the on the album uh, the the score release um, that's with the track henry plainview so we might hear some of that now right That's a um, that's a very different opening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, mean, what, what's happening there? What what are we what are we really listening to? Well, uh, maybe maybe Hugh can best yeah, explain. Hugh. Yeah, Hugh. We've actually we're really lucky here because mm. because Hugh's down here, uh, ready to conduct. We actually have the full score mm. open in front of us. So, Hugh. What, what is happening in this here? I mean, for sort of sounds like it could be flies, mosquitoes, um, <laughs> something really tense. Um, what, what is actually going on here? Well, it's interesting. Um, just, just one final point on why this is a unique score. The first 15 minutes mm. of the film, there's no dialogue. Mm. So this, is, this, again, is the strength of Paul Thomas Anderson and, and his editor that throughout, this, throughout the film, there's so much space created for the music just to breathe to to come to the surface and really be a character in its own right and that's especially um true in this opening opening few minutes where we see shots of sort of ominous almost foreboding hills that are going to serve as a, as a central character throughout almost offering a, a commentary on what's about to mm. ensue so those that's meant to be california um, but i believe it was shot on location in, in marfa in, in texas right and so the, the the shot that fades in on the hills, and as the fade in becomes, it's, uh, the shot comes to its brightest point. That's where we reach the the unison F sharp. That's where the the fading shot ends. Um, so that's over the titles, and then it's out within about two minutes, and then we have about three and a half minutes of no music and just Daniel Plainview digging himself. Um, 
trying to find some some oil, some some gold actually I should say in the first instance. So building his equipment, going down the ladder um, into the into the depth of of his tunnel. So that's just music and landscapes and some some shots of the central character. It's very sparse. It's very bare. Um, it's and very raw. Something that is quite different here is that when we talk orchestration, so you know parts that are written for the orchestra, it's very normal that you know you've got a single part written for the first violins, of which there could be you know up to six, sixteen, for instance, mm-hmm. and then you've got a different part written for the second violins. But these are two parts written for many instruments. But in this particular score, I'm just looking at it now. Now, there is individual parts written for all the different violins. Are they doing anything different here or is, you know, how are they achieving that sort of big cluster sound? Do do each of the parts have something different or are the musicians all playing something similar like they would normally? So, there are, there are 18 violin parts, um, six viola parts and a single cello joining um, the upper strings for this first entry. So, that is, what's that, 20... 26, 24, 25, 25 individual string parts. And they're playing over the range of um, an octave. So starting on each of them, a C for the first violins and then C below, the octave below and the cellos. And between that, every individual part is playing a, a quarter tone. And over the course of... What, what can you tell me about a quarter tone for so people? So it's, it's a semitone s- split down the middle. Yeah. So I mean, it's actually a note that sort of doesn't technically exist in, in yeah, Western it, music. It feels like um, a colouring yeah. of a note. It might sound out of tune. Um, so they each have an individual quarter tone assigned to them. And over the course of eight bars, and there's quite a slow tempo that's moving out, they very gradually converge into that unison F sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some sliding up, some sliding down. Yeah, and how do you how do you map that? Like, at what do they do? They have to be at a certain point in their slides at a certain bar, or how? I mean, because it, it seems to me to be quite difficult to organise a mass slur. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the trick is not for it not to come too late, right. so that it's almost imperceptible. And then mm. when everyone does centre on that F sharp, mm. um, it sounds incredibly clean um and and bright Mm. as a sonority um and then they converge away the next bar and they end up where they where they started Mm. Mm. yeah i mean it's sort of a it's like you you were saying earlier it's a great musical way of bringing something into focus you know, so you can start off with what amounts to quite a lot of sort of tension, I guess. Mm. And then that sliding feeling where it's sliding to a note, mm. I mean, it sort of gives you a, there is a bit of an ominous vibe. Like it's mm. it's a sinking feeling. It's a feeling that something's not quite right here. And then it comes into mm. full view mm. and you focus and, but not before departing again. Mm. So, you know, right off the bat, Johnny's created a, a soundscape that, you know, like we said at the start, has really set the tone mm. for this whole, you know, mm. whole movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the other things that probably we can, I mean, quite quickly get into is the, the you know, the, the fact that Greenwood's musical influences are not necessarily the musical influences that we see in other film scores. Um, they're largely a lot of, you know, sort of a, what you might call modernist composers, I suppose, of the, the 20th century, like mid mid 20th century to, to late 60s that sort of era um, and the the one that definitely comes to mind here which maybe I'll uh, in this context play a little bit of is Xenarchus um, Ianis Xenarchus a Greek composer who you know is, is also 
really uh, an, an interesting, interesting composer with his his piece, um, Metastasis, I think that's how you say it. Um, yep. <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of similar ideas of sort of conversion of strings in huge clusters. So I'll just I'll just play the the start of that now. Yeah, well. let's check it out. That's certainly something you can dance to. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what that, that remind me of? I, I All I could hear was the THX. I know. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the THX logo. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that they took some inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Yep. But I mean, you know, as well, uh, thinking of film music, the other thing that, that both of these pieces remind me of as well is the opening to Close Encounters, actually. Oh, yeah. The, yep. the start with John Williams's mm-hmm. um, Let There Be Light, you know, sort of opening statement of, of, of notes that coincides with Spielberg turning the whole screen white. Mm. Uh, actually, like I'm sure John Williams is very aware of a lot of these composers too. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> sure. Mm. But um, yeah, certainly I think that's one of the recurring really interesting things about this score is it's, is it's the range of influences. But I mean, perhaps as well. I mean, uh, should I... Should I talk about Pend- it, you said it was Pendereski is that Pendereski. I've been pronouncing um, it cor- incorrectly my, yeah no I say Pendereski but I, I, that's probably not correct either but. no 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 I would trust your judgement I've only ever read most of these <laughs> names <laughs> he and Greenwood they worked on an album together I think is it, it's the yeah that's right mm. it, was, it was a sort of co-release half of it featuring Pendereski's music half mm. of it featuring Greenwood's and one of those pieces by Greenwood was um, 48 Responses to Polymorphia, uh, one of Penderecki's um, masterpieces, written mm. for forty-eight individual strings. Mm. So again, another sort of nod there um, in mm. terms of how Greenwood likes to use every individual string player rather mm. than using them in units. Mm. Mm. Certainly, and I mean, I, I mean, I've got a little bit of Penderecki here just to illustrate that I've got probably his most famous piece, which is the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, um, Hiroshima rather, which is. Um, well, I'll play an excerpt, but it's 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 tough, <laughs> tough listening. So tough it might not be a long excerpt. Here, here we go. <laughs> Great. sort of goes on like that for about nine minutes um, no I mean like it's it's a remarkable piece of music I, yep. I, I love to troll my students with it actually when I when I play them an example of modernist music or you know um, contemporary 
um, 20th century music. This is in the context of media studies. This is not music studies or anything mm-hmm. like that. So a lot of them have never heard anything like this ever before <laughs> in their lives. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, you know interesting to see that sort of response. But but more than any other composer, we're talking with with this score. We're talking someone who's really setting a soundscape. They're setting a mm-hmm. mood. They're setting a feeling, and it's like a psychological you know aspect to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's not even you should feel sad here or you should feel like it's it's like quite a psychological mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And and that's why it's such a unique, mm. um, in the context of film music history, such a unique uh, score yep. on this one. Mm. So, let's let's keep on moving yeah. through some of these examples. Where to, where to next, Dan? Yeah, well, I thought maybe we can go to Open Spaces, um, which we heard actually at the, the, the top of the, the podcast. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, we sort of get this combination of strings and there's a little bit of clusters in there as well, but we get the... The addition of the On Martineau, which we spoke about before, mm. and I think, you know, it'll be really interesting to hear how that again colours the, the sort of the tone of the strings. Yeah, absolutely. So, here we go. So while while this is playing, it, mm-hmm. it's really hard to pick up the the on Martino here. Yeah. It's actually right in the middle of the of the the, the chords that are happening. Um, so but it sounds like it could be an electric guitar, sort of, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost an Ebo sound or something. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's right there in the center. You mm. um, actually let, let's just uh, that opening opening chord. Yep. Hugh, how are you a good singer? Because <laughs> yeah. I sang before. Yeah, and embarrass myself. Can you can you hum the note that that it's coming through while we play this? Yep. And because right. it's, I reckon this is really interesting to just mm. when you hear it, you suddenly realise there is actually something that's not a string in there. Absolutely. But I think in the first listening, it, it does feel like it. It's just yeah, more it's strings. Not, yeah. Um. So so let's let's start that cue again, Dan right. and and Hugh on debut <laughs> with uh, Art of the Score. Let's hear a little bit of singing so you can just hear where that note is. of that sound yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and everything else With is sort of en- encompassing it yeah. yeah yeah exactly it's almost like mm-hmm. the icing around that that core note and it's a very pure tone as we were saying earlier the, the idea is I think when they were first creating the instruments to try and find something that emulates the human voice and as such it's a very pure signal and what the strings are doing around it is providing some energy some activity and what Greenwood asks them to do quite unconventional in that you, when you look at any 
string section, professional string section, they'll all their bows will be going in the same direction at the same time. Yep. Um, what he asks here is for each individual player to randomly change bows and put in a little accent. Oh, right. Huh. Okay. Um, and he's also asking each individual string player to trill, so move quickly from one note to the other sporadically at, at their own freedom. So that creates that that buzzing energy around yeah. the floor tone of the El Martino. And it, and giving every player their own option of when they change the mm-hmm. bow because what happens with with string instruments is that depending on whether you're you're pushing the bow up or pulling it down over the strings it has a slightly different timbre to it and there is a accent that can sometimes happen when you change that direction and so if you scatter that all over the the place and you allow that you know a whole bunch of musicians to do it when they want you get all this what is actually a very organic not chaotic but it's an organic sound that sounds like it could have evolved naturally mm-hmm. it would almost be not quite impossible to notate but certainly you get a really great result yeah. by allowing the musicians to sort of make their own decisions on this so yeah it's a gorgeous a gorgeous little one on there yeah. Yeah, I mean, it reflects the film as well, right? Because, I mean, a lot of these sequences are being used um, in, in landscape shots or larger scale sequences, right? Mm. And it sort of, you know, it feels very earthy. It feels very organic, that sort of mm. effect. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and by and large, Greenwood, for, for those bigger, more expansive shots, the landscape shots, he's, re- he's deploying larger forces. Yeah, right. Okay. So it's almost as if he's giving voice. To yep. the, you know, to the hills at the very opening, and then for the more intimate scenes involving just a few characters, he pairs the instrumental forces down. So he's using, just say, a string quartet or a piano quintet. Mm. So it's very simple in that in that mm. respect. But the way he paces it is very, very subtle, and it almost has a subconscious yeah, effect right. on the on the view. So it really is a direct translation from open spaces, big vast vistas, exactly. big orchestra. Yeah, small group, small you know, a character or two. We've got a small ensemble. So, mm. because we've been talking about this this on Martineau yeah. a little bit, um, Dan, you had an example of uh, probably in the orchestral mm. world, the on Martineau, if it's ever played, mm. it is almost certainly going to be by unless of course you're doing brand new music and people mm. are specifically writing for it. It's almost certainly going to be this particular piece yeah. um, and I know the MSO has, has performed this quite a few times right? because um, there is a there is a Melbourne resident expert on, on Martineau and he always this is his gig Yeah, <laughs> when this one comes up he's, he's ready to go right. um, so anyway what can you tell us about this one Dan? Uh, well so it's the Turangalila is that there we yeah, go yep. that, yeah, which is um, by um, Olivier Messiaen yep. um, which I think I pronounced all that correctly yeah. once again mostly I've, I've only seen these names written down um, <laughs> I've read a lot about this but I've never had the chance to actually talk about it and he, he I mean probably this piece yeah, as you were saying the, the association with this instrument with mm. the so I'll just I'll just play it and it, you'll hear it's a very different usage to yeah, the one that we just heard
Yeah, so again, those those really high whistles in there. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like someone's whistling. Yeah, yeah. So it's all it's always um like we said before, it's all you know, it's always that organic sound, mm. but somehow produced on an electronic instrument, which is why I'm so disappointed, I guess, with the idea of going to modern digital, mm. you know, electronic instruments because they do sound digital, mm. uh, and moving away from all of those great analog instruments you've sort of really lost mm. some of the the humanity in in some of those sounds so anyway yeah it's a re- it's a really nice one yeah i mean the one thing that i wanted to talk about and maybe this is i don't know this is probably ludicrous i've always wondered in open spaces the cue that we just listened to there's a little just just, just a tiny little bit which i'm just going to play now i'm going to put something to you yep okay yeah uh, here we go So that little bit there, I just feel like that's possibly a quote of summertime. Summertime? Yeah, I know that sounds completely Rusting. absurd. Yeah, yeah. Very, I okay. know that sounds completely... And the part of... I mean, you know, the... Da, 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 da. And, oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yep. Did, 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 you, did, you, did you catch that? Do you I want me to do it again? Or? Yeah, do what you mean, but do it Yeah, do yeah drop it again. Do it again, again. okay. So, look, I don't know. Uh, it's what I hear every time I hear this yep. piece. But, I mean, look. Gershwin, is that because you're a, you're a jazz guy at heart? Yeah, but Dan, that, that is, is that? true. Yeah, that, that, is, that is true. But, I mean, I, I, I love Paul Guinness, Yep, which is the sort of opera which sometime is from. Mm. And, you know, Gershwin was somebody who was actually kind of interested in art music at the time sure. um, and when he wrote Porgy and Bess um, he was inspired by you know some trips to Europe where he kind of wanted to be taken a lot more seriously actually and was talking to some composers over there and yeah I just feel like maybe there's kind of a dialogue there it's a big American space mm. It's, you know, uh, when when Summertime is played, it's the start of Paul Guillaume Bess, mm. where sort of, a, you know, there's a very poor family uh, on stage. The mother is singing to the child, ironically, about the lack of prospects in life. I just feel like there's ah. some thematic resonance. Well, yeah. well, Dan, I've got good news for you. Yeah. I happen to know a guy mm. who not only is an expert on this score, but also knows Johnny Greenwood. Uh, yeah, it's Hugh okay. Brunt. Hugh, yeah. what can you? What's the final word on this one? Yeah. Um, are you Are you going to let Dan have that slide, or what's What's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we can. Uh, yeah, we can let that simmer for a while. Ne- <laughs> ne- ne- next time I. It's not a yes, Dan. Yeah. No, next time I see him, I'll, I'll be sure to put it to him. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's probably yeah. a, f- a first he's been, he's been asked. Nice, yeah. nice Porgy and Bess quote, yeah, yeah. Well, Mr. Greenwood. Yeah, maybe it's completely ridiculous. It's yeah. what I hear every time I no, hear I mean, it. Mo- motivically, there's there's some similarity for sure. Mm. Um, whether it's intentional or not, I, yeah. I don't know, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fun. See. It's fun to theorise. Yeah, it is. We like isn't to do it? on this show. Isn't we it? we isn't like it? to make bold claims. Yeah. Let's move on to right. a another track, and I actually think that this this particular one, it, when I think of there will be blood and its soundtrack, this is the one. This is the cue yep. that comes to mind. I think it's the one they use over the um, trailer. Yep. As well. That's right. So yeah. this is the score's main theme, if you if you ask me. Okay. But yeah, let, let's just have a listen to it.
So this is where the score starts to get really quite rhythmic, which mm. is another one of its fantastic elements. The, I mean, the strings here are so <laughs> driving. Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And really fantastic. And um, so many of the so many of the cues start with that almost pulseless, you know, without a without mm. a rhythm or without beat, painting sort of more of a soundscape. Mm. Whereas this one really comes in like a chamber ensemble version of sort of a rock. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a rock piece. So that that opening yeah. thing. Um, uh, what do you reckon, Hugh? With the the open of this, it feels like it could have been written on guitar. It feels like, in terms of Johnny Greenwood's you know, background that this is sort of just such a driving, you know, rhythm and, and um, baseline for want of a, a better sure. term. Yeah. What, what do you reckon about this one? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how how far into the film we hear music of this nature. And, and for me, it, it almost represents the, um, the ambition boiling up in Daniel Plainview and that he's essentially come to an agreement in principle with the, the Sunday family, so with Eli and Eli's father, to start looking for oil on their land. Mm. So it's almost like that's bubbling up inside mm. and he's getting excited. So hence the, 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 the driving um, kind of motor figure in the cellos and double basses. Are you saying that this is sort of like his his ambition has suddenly, you know, been released and now he's yeah, off he's to starting, work? And, yeah, I think yeah. he's starting to get frisky. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so we have some asymmetrical time signatures going on. So moving from 4-4 four, four time to 3-4, also with um, some, some compound time signatures in there, 3-8. And the cellos and basses alternating between half of them plucking the strings, half of them bowing the strings. And then we get the agitated violin figures coming in a few moments later so playing these very kind of sharp sour sounding stabs mm. a marked sul pont which means to play near the bridge right. or on the bridge so yeah i think i think this energy comes from from the character of daniel so mm. to get excited about what his prospects might be right and and with all of those sort of different stabs and and all of those pizzicato those pluck strings i mean it sh- it sort of shows a character who isn't 100% sane you know, like I, there, there is a sort of a, a madness bubbling Absolutely. there yeah. because it's not a really easy to understand melody. There isn't, you know, it is sort of all over the place a little mm-hmm. bit, but mm-hmm. it also feels contained, like you said. Right. So he's he's not, mm-hmm. you know, exploding with with crazy at this point in time. But yeah, and the music sort of shows that that you know that baseline is the like you said that him getting excited getting frisky i like that term and use that from now on and you know but all of those stabs and those pizzicato sort of shows that that mental state mm. that he's in so mm. super well, I, effective i think also it completely unsettles the any sort of idea that the audience might have had that his drive is from any sort of pure or balanced place yes it's it's saying actually from the beginning this is kind of this is not necessarily a nice thing to to want to do to the world, and it's not coming from uh, a, a place that we should admire mm. or, or that is any way sort of um, um, imbalanced. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. And I also find that the you know there's opening dun 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 dun. There is a a feel like whenever you repeat notes over and over again like that, and then you have some um, accents uh, at the beginning of of each set of four notes. It does feel like there is a machine mm. quality to that. It yep. feels like machines ticking mm. over and, you know, because that's about to be what's going to happen. You mm. know, there's a whole bunch of industry is about to come in here. Yeah, almost as if you can see the drilling happening already in his own Yeah, mm. totally, totally. Mm. You, can, you can feel that, that, that pump 
you know, or that drill coming, yeah. you know, coming yeah. in and out. And yeah, so I think there's, once again, a really, really genius cue, this one. I, I, I think it really plays out really nicely compared mm. to, you know, everything else mm. and really shows that, like you said, for the one of the first times, something with a genuine pulse, yep. but it's an unbalanced pulse, like mm. you were saying here, with the with the mixed time signatures that change, mm. you know, constantly. So, mm. yeah, a, cute, a cool little one. Yeah. And I think probably as well, I mean, the fact that we start, especially towards the end of the section that we just played then, that we start getting into these more elaborate sort of pixicato sequences. I mean, the, I, th- I think the other cue that sort of has to go with this in our discussions is is Proven Lands, um, which I, I'm, I might yeah, play let's, for us let's, now. Yeah, let's have a listen. Yep. Also some really spectacularly unique use of strings Great. in film music. Finally, Dan, something I can dance to. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so I always thought that this was what's called a a Bartok snap. I think it's called a Bartok snap, right? Well, it comes from Bella Bartok. Yeah, snap pits or Bartok pits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But is that, I mean, it's actually, it's guitar guitar picks, is that? Well, actually, no, you're you're right because... There are two elements to this. You have the, the constant driving rhythm mm-hmm. uh, and that's created with plucking, by plucking the strings using guitar plectrums. Right. Um, so not just with the, the finger, the tip of the finger, um, not using the bow, uh, the, the wood of the bow, but actually just a guitar pick mm. um, and muting the strings with your left hand. And actually, he, he marks in the score, he asks them to do the up and down motion mm. as you would a guitar. So, huh. m- most of this, the, certainly the violins and violas will actually turn the instruments on their side and play it in the, in the same position mm. you play a guitar. Like a, like a ukulele almost. Yeah. Or a mandolin yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, that's the constant driving rhythm going on. And then, on top of that, there's this kind of skewed, uh, so there's sort of there's kind of some melodic treatment in there, which um, alternates between pizzicato for some instruments and the same notes also being bowed. Mm. But here and there, he actually marks um, the, this, this sign, which is a circle with a little dash through at the top, which is the sign for a Bartok pits. Mm. Um, so that there are both going on. And for the really brittle, heavily accented notes, he asks for Bartok pits right. instead of just the normal, mm. a normal plucked sound mm. and so what's the what's the difference between the Bartok pits and the and the, a standard pizzicato Bartok pits you're you're pulling the string almost up vertically so that the string then slaps back down onto the fingerboard yeah so that's where you hear that kind of ricochet sound. It's yeah. from the, the string, the metal of the string hitting the, the wooden fingerboard. Yep. And does that mean that every double bassist who's ever played uh, country and western bluegrass yeah. are essentially just um, Bartok Pitts players? Is, yeah. that the, uh, is that how this works? I think that is that's the idea. Yep. <laughs> but the plectrum sound, is, it's an incredibly fresh sounding one. And actually mm. Steve Reich, I believe somewhere is on record as saying that it's the sound that Greenwood has created here is the, the, the freshest 
freshest string sound since Bartok Pitts. Mm. There we go. Yeah. So well. here they are entwined yeah. in this particular cue. Yeah, and that's fantastic. And um, actually, I have a I have a little story about the the um, guitar picks, the plectrums for this. So when you know, obviously we're preparing for this show, and for the first time ever in my <laughs> my life at the at the MSO. Uh, we had our production guy saying, so, Andrew, what type of picks do you want us to buy? Yeah. What fitness? Very good question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you go for? Um, I feel like, because we didn't discuss this, did we, here? No, I didn't. feel like I'm going to tell you and you're going to go, you've stuffed up. <laughs> no, we went, uh, because I didn't know whether to go soft or hard or right. medium. You we went, thought we went medium because there's, there's, it's in the middle. That's fine. Is that fine? That's Are great. we good? Yeah, I, I feel like I we should have had this have conversation have off, here, off mic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Um, beautiful. Okay. Uh, um, I still have a job. That's good. Oh, no. Well, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, look, I've played guitar with a, a pick fashioned out of a business card. So, you know, you can do anything. <laughs> um, I mean, so the reason that it's called a, a, a Bartok snap or Bartok pits is, is I, I think, I mean, most famously it's used in a, in a piece by Bella Bartok, the um, music for strings, percussion and Celeste. That's um, right. So he, he, he feels like well, he, he wanted to own that sound. Mm. And I would say the other sound gr- very much um, belongs to Greenwood. Mm. And it's, it's also used in um, the beginning of Burn the Witch, the first track on the yes. new Radiohead record. In fact, I think all you hear there is is strings and they all they're all strumming their their strings with with guitar picks as well hmm. well we can we can sort of work our way through um, a couple of those examples actually so I've got, just quickly just to yeah, illustrate yep. um, I've got Bartok's piece here Uh, and so you can hear the, you know, the the string snaps sort of going on there, and um, sort of quite aggressive pizzicato mm. playing. Um, but yeah, then through to well, actually, you know, before we get to burn the witch, I just wanted to illustrate uh, one other example that Johnny Greenwood and Tom York actually did. They collaborated with Doom, the rapper. Mm. Uh, and made a, a piece which I think has a very unfortunate name, but I've got to name the piece, I suppose. Um, it's called um, Retarded Friend, but you'll see why I'm playing it in just a moment. Honest days work for honest days pay. Stay taking wages the anonymous way. Karmish, pay to the Amish selling. Promise me gold bond, palm it's swelling. So, this podcast yeah. just got a whole lot more cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I mean, I, th- I, th- I assume it's a sample of of, of this track yeah. actually. Mm. Yeah, being used in there by both um, yeah Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, I think, to create that bed that he's rapping over the mm. top of. But then I guess yeah, this the sound develops further in in Burn the Witch, which um, uh, Hugh you conducted. Is that is that right? That yeah, we're that's about right. to hear. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, yeah, all right. Let's so, are we listening to you right now, Hugh? I mean, we've been listening to you you're listening talk. to me, wa- waving my but arms around silently. We've been listening to you yeah. working. You're, you're, yeah. you're listening to the real musicians yeah, doing yeah. the hard work. <laughs> Great, uh, here it is. Burn the witch. Burn the witch. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's great. A great tune, uh, great. Probably one of my favorite um, from Radiohead in a, in a long time. And I think you know, this, <clears throat> the moment that I heard that track released, I think it was was it a year, about a year ago, maybe now. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was like, oh, you know, okay, great. Now the, the there will be blood. The the film composing influence is working its way back into into their yeah right their records, yep. which yeah. rather than the other way around. Yeah, well, mm. yeah. I mean, look, it's interesting to think about Johnny Greenwood as a rock compose rock rock musician turned film composer because you know when you there are quite a few of those mm. over the course of you know our last episode was Danny Elfman yep. who you know uh, similarly played in a band um, for many years. Um, you know, Hans Zimmer uh, yep. did some work with the Buggles before going sure. on to, to to be a film composer. We've got Nick Cave. Yep, yep. Being same the with, most same with Jack Cuzzle. Right. Comes from a from a band background too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And yet I don't know. I, I sort of feel like it's almost like Johnny Greenwood got sidetracked by Radiohead <laughs> <laughs> doing, you know, popular music and but he's always been interested in I mean, I know that he's been interested in Messiaen for, you know, since he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And he was a violinist, I think. I mean, viola player, yeah. Yeah, viola, mm-hmm. right, right. And so, I think maybe he's slightly a different category from those others that we just listed to, to a certain extent. I don't know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that's why this, this score is so so well-informed, mm. for want of a better term. Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of, you know, classical music history mm. coming out whilst also, like you pointed out, Hugh, you know, reinventing or, or bringing a fresh new take on this sort of stuff. And you can only really do that by actually knowing where you've come from yep. as well. And, mm. uh, you know, you can you can just tell that when you listen to this stuff that there's – it's incredibly well-informed, mm. you know, mm-hmm. with – with the the history of sort of 20th, 20th and 21st century music. So, definitely. Shall we move on, guys? Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of rhythm, I mean, there's one incredible section of the the whole film which is much more rhythmic than the the rest. Uh, Hugh, I think you've you've got that track Convergence um, where the the oil explosion uh, occurs. In yeah, the I do. And actually just just quickly before we move on, I should say there's in what we just heard there's almost like a third element which really came to the fore when listening to that MF Doom track you just played which is I thought might be interesting to point out is what the double basses are doing. Mm. Um, talking about Bartok pits, they also are asked to do a, a fingerboard slap so they're actually just slapping the whole hand mm. um, directly onto the four strings of the mm. instrument so that the strings bounce off the, the, the fingerboard to create that even more direct percussive sound than the plectrums. Yeah, right. But then they're also sliding their fingers down after the note before that and he asked them to, for it to sound like a loose-skinned, uh, a loose-skinned bass drum. Mm. So mm. he's, That's he's interesting. using the double basses there almost as the rhythm section in that Doom track it, it comes mm. across really yeah. clearly. So mm. they're, they're the drums. Basically, really. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Mm. Um, so this this piece convergence happens um, during the oil rig explosion, and uh, this one, at least in terms of how it is staged, you know, and um, performed live, this one's sort of quite different. What can you tell us, you about how this how this differs with the ensemble? Well, this requires twelve percussionists in total, and um, only. Two percussionists are required for the rest of the score. Um, just doing some some quite straightforward stuff: timpani, tam tam, vibraphone. And what's required here is that ten of the other orchestral musicians are required to play some double up on some hand, most of it hand percussion, but some larger instruments too. And this is to create the 
organized chaos of the oil rig explosions. Mm. Um, and the way that it was uh, originally recorded was by taking the same loop being played over many instruments, um, it being reversed, I think, a couple of times at different speeds. Um, and so, so one of the single instruments, the, the large tom-tom is played at a constant speed and the others around were ratcheted up to play slightly quicker or some slowed down. And then over the course of a few minutes, they they converge very, very slowly onto the single constant pulse. Yeah, right. So quite, quite something to try and do live. Yeah, especially um, something that's been so heavily, you know, edited. Yeah, that way that manipulated. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're asking live musicians to recreate that process, which must be quite challenging. Yeah. <laughs> and especially given that, 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 like you were saying, with, with 12 percussionists, yeah. that, you know, we've only got two two real, you know, full-time percussionists. Exactly. And then we're asking 10 brass woodwind players to do what they don't normally do <laughs> and then also nail a concept that is actually quite difficult to <laughs> perceive. So, great. this is going to be good. That's, this is part of the danger, Dan, yeah. <laughs> that, that we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, before we talk about it too much more, Hugh, do we want to um, play a little sample of uh, this convergence, the all-rig explosion cue? Yes. pretty full on yeah what, what can you tell me about how this works within the scene of the film how does this sort of help paint a picture with what's happening um well i guess as the as the fire picks up a pace that's represented in in the way that the percussion becomes more busy mm-hmm. and also as it starts to dawn on daniel plainview who's just rescued his son who was positioned very close to the oil rig when it exploded that he might have lost his hearing mm. And it's also the excitement there that as a result of um, them tapping into the oil, there being so much of it, it's caused the oil rig to explode. Right. So they've just broken through into a whole ocean of oil, as he says. Mm. So the dollar signs are going yep. as well as his 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 dread thinking that his son might be might have suffered some, you know, severe um hearing damage mm. and it turns out that he he does he is indeed um 
permanently deaf. So it's quite a, a tragic scene in a lot of ways, but there's the, again, there's that excitement bubbling up yeah. inside Daniel. Mm. I mean, how specific do you have to be in a live performance? Is, are they having to hit absolutely every note or is, it, is that idea of chaos allowed to come out also a little more organically than... Um, yeah, there, there, there's a certain flexibility to it. Again, like you were saying earlier, he sets up these slightly looser parameters that achieve what would be so difficult to notate precisely. Mm. So he, he gives us, in terms of the BPM that we need to be playing at, he gives us a range of about 40 BPM. Yep. And that means beats per minute. Exactly. Yep. So that for the players to enter in slightly, at a slightly quicker or slower speed. And mm. the hardest job is given to the first percussionist that has to maintain a, that, that pattern at a constant rate throughout, yep. constant speed. And then everyone else converges around mm. him or her. Where they enter is important but at what speed is completely up to them. Yeah, right. Yep. So those are that's kind of framework that we have to play with. Yeah, so that's going to be it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. And then underneath that, we have again at a, a completely different tempo, we have the strings who are asked to detune their lowest string, mm. slacken them so that when they increase the bow pressure on the string, the pitch goes up. Yeah, right. Um so this creates another level of tension. And when they start playing at the very soft dynamic, you can hardly hear them. But then as they get louder, they just about come through the texture. And so you, you feel them adding this, this um, additional sense of excitement and dynamism to the cue as, as Daniel's own excitement levels increase. Mm. Mm. And so the, the string players, in terms of their instruments, they really get put through the... Uh, <laughs> through the grinder here. I mean, you, you're plucking them with, with uh, guitar picks mm -hmm. and you're detuning and putting them under pressure to do stuff. You're slapping around. Yeah. This they're is... also asked to play behind the bridge. Oh, right. So, okay. Yeah. That creates a very um, high-pitched, almost kind of squeaky metallic sound. Yeah. yeah grating. Yeah. So it's uh, the, none of these sounds uh, are, are particularly pleasant to no <laughs> to, to enjoy in their in their own right and mm. together they just create this hybrid monster that reflects the 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 impact of what's going on yeah on screen absolutely mm. dan let's let's move past convergence yeah. yeah let's have a look at one of the smaller yeah. ensemble cues being the prospector's quartet all right why don't we just hear that straight away absolutely
That is a really beautiful cue. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably the first time, at least in this episode, we've heard a major chord. <laughs> <laughs> you may actually be right there. <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. But, you know, the, the way it's constructed. So, this is a, this is a string quartet. Mm. And easy to understand because it's called Prospectors Quartet. Right. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, it, it is constructed with a, a, a cello ostinato, mm. and we discussed those in the Vertigo episode about the ostinato, and the ostinato being a repeated rhythmic pattern, and this sort of really helps sort of ground this particular piece, and, you know, it's probably the most, like, if I think about the entire score, so this is still a stretch, but if I think about the entire score, this this piece does feel like it it could have come from a rock background it does feel like there's a there's a bit of a you know a, a baseline there's a driving pulse well, it's not quite driving but there is a pulse mm. down there and you've got these nice counter melodies the 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 top violins do sound like they could be um, you know a melody that is sung i don't know what do you think about that here is that am i really trying to draw a long bow here or what's the what's the what do you think about this particular cue no, no, that's, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. And it goes back to what we we're saying about Greenwood writing, using smaller forces for the on-screen ensemble yes. pieces. So, this is, um, this is right towards the end of the film. And you see um, uh, H.W., uh, Daniel, Daniel Plainview's son, being taught by his, uh, his teacher who's trying to help him get his, get his hearing back. Mm. And there's also um, Mary, who's the the daughter um, or Eli Sunday's um, sister I should say Uh, she's one of the youngest daughters from the Sunday family and they're kind of becoming closer and closer as friends and at the end of this scene it fast forward to fast forwards to um, 1927 you see them um, getting married Mm. so again it's very about the kind of intimate relationship of of those two in particular and as such using pair down pair down forces um, and there's a simplicity about it as well. Harmonically, it's quite straightforward. Suddenly, to suddenly to begin with, as you say, there's a more l- lyrical kind of or- ornate violin line over the top. But it could almost be a fiddle. I mean, it has that's true. A, a yep. slightly sort of rustic, simple yep. quality to it that um, reflects the, the environment mm. that, that, it, that it sits within. I mean, I think though the cue sort of breathes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it has it almost feels a little bit like some of the some of the Radiohead songs that have that sort of ballad-like emphasis on the the two and the four, like the mm, duh, mm, duh, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. That, that sort of rhythm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I also kind of think of other influences here. And um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a direct influence at all, you know, with Greenwood's interest in, in Messiaen. I mean, the, the quartet for the end of time is, is certainly Messiaen's, you know, famous quartet. Yep. Yep. Um, and I mean, if you listen here to um, the fifth fifth part of that, you can hear, I mean, you know, I just feel like it's maybe a sort of similar mood. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. Thank you. 
Uh, certainly in the rest of the score, there are other sort of um, tr- uh, tracks that r- recall, I think, that, that music. Yeah, I mean, it's so achingly beautiful. That that whole Messian piece, and and mm. I think also the 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 Greenwood this quartet as well really does feel like that. I mean, people who aren't familiar with that that quartet for the end of time, mm, I mean, it's it was a, great a story. It was a a piece written by uh, Messian, who unfortunately found himself in a a concentration camp in in World War Two, and he composed this piece while he was in the concentration camp. Some of the guards allowed some of the the musicians who were who were imprisoned there to access a piano, a violin, a clarinet, yep. and what is cello. the fourth and cello. Yep. And they actually premiered this piece inside the camp. And I thought that was maybe an interesting, you know, if we're going to try and sort of talk mm. about the influences or maybe how it works. We mm. always like to make these these claims here that perhaps the reason why this works. I mean, is is H W? I mean, he, he hasn't. He's he's deaf. He's trying to get his hearing back. I wonder if there is a sort of a sense of, you know, imprisonment in terms of you've lost your your hearing. There is, I don't know. Is there? I mean, this is a. I'm I'm throwing this out there, mm. Dan. Mm. Is, you know, it, there is a sadness to it. There oh, is a, you know, that breathing. I think. Mm. I don't know. It, it, is there a similar mood? Yeah. Um, no. I mean, look. I think you know. I mean, Messian's uh, music has so clearly influenced Greenwood. I think from. Uh, a, a long time and I mean I can hear bits of Radiohead in that in that movement yep, as well sure. I think actually the the more the most direct link and I was going to play this as well mm. is that uh, and I think this is clearly meant to be a reference is from another Greenwood score um, for the master yep um, and I'll just play you super quickly the first uh, well uh, no what I'll do is I'll play you a bit of the master first and this the title gives it away is called time hole okay so here's here's the start Obviously, this is this is digitally altered, and also I, I think Hugh, this is more of your work, isn't it? Yeah, not me playing, not me playing the clarinet, and you'll be pleased to. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't play the clarinet, and if I did, I wouldn't play as beautifully as that. But yeah, uh, mm. yeah London Contemporary Orchestra involved in in that mm-hmm. score as well. Yeah, mm. and then this is the the first part of the quartet for the end of time. I mean, just a super quick comparison. I mean, I just feel like with that track in particular, that's that. I mean, and you know, time time hole goes on to to sort of elaborate on a few of those ideas. Which, considering this is a uh, episode about there will be blood and not the master, <laughs> maybe we won't go into. But I mean, I think you know that that sort of influence there is. Uh, I think um, that's that's the the clearest that it's that it's got. Yeah, mm. and and um, Prospects Quartet. That material is heard earlier in the film as well incorporating a uh, piano and Martino. and it's interesting that the first time that material is used that ostinato figure it's when daniel plainview is entering the community and then the second time we hear it with just the quartet eli is leaving the community so i think i think there's something there in terms of bookending one journey in mm. and another's out of of um of the village so there's something there about yeah 
entering and exiting and journeys and where Eli is going on to next, mm. how Daniel is going to continue within that community. So I think it's used very effectively in that in that sense to frame those two portraits. Definitely, yeah. And I mean, actually, to, to, to think of this film as a Western, I mean, Westerns are all about the sort of unity of the community versus the outsiders. And, you know, sort of if you think of the traditional Western, the, the, the model is that, um, you know, there's a small community out in the middle of nowhere and a threat emerges, whether mm-hmm. that's, you know, sort of the, the Native Americans or, um, you know, cowboys, evil black hats, right? Mm. And then somebody emerges either from the community or outside of the community to protect it and um, defeats the bad guys. And then there's the crucial problem of what do you do with the hero? Do they rejoin the community? In which case, usually with the traditional model of a Western, they have to get married to someone within the community. <laughs> yep. Or do they leave and they ride off into the sunset because they've committed to evil acts to be part of that group. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yep. You know, and, and sort of that's, the, that's the, the tension inherent in the genre. And that's why a film like High Noon, for example, was so... Um, uh, shocking to people because that's a film about you know the hero he's already done his days as a hero and now he needs support from the community and they all say no nah, no way we're not going to help <laughs> but so to go back to that point I think that you were making about this music sort of underscoring these moments of, of trying to join trying to create a society I mean that's kind of what this film is, is about to an extent or you know on what basis is the society formed so the, this music I think yeah is really interesting there so, guys, I, I think that we're getting close to the end, but, of course, this film finishes not mm. with a piece by Johnny Greenwood, Mm-mm. but with a piece by Brahms, mm. and it is his violin concerto. Yep. Hugh, why do you think that that this was put in at the at the end here, the sort of the last thing that the, the film goer listens to after they leave? That's a very good question. I have no idea how Paul Thomas Anderson arrived at it, but... Again, it feels like another masterstroke. It's mm. so definitive. It's so majestic. It's so grand. Um, it's an incredibly powerful uh, musical conclusion to the film. It works. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It just it just fits. And the, the amount of silence after the last words from Daniel Plainview and when this starts, it's just absolute perfection. Mm. Yeah, that's all there is. <laughs> yeah, they certainly. Same. I mean, I, that that use of silence. Yeah, I think is as important as you know a score like it. Like it, you know, everyone knows with a score the the use of music or not the use of music is so important. And and this one just really lets the the audience bathe in the conclusion. Mm. Um, horrifying. Conclusion, yeah, the horrifying yeah. conclusion, and just lets it sit there mm. for so long. And um, it, it's so different than the rest yeah. of the sonic landscape of the, the rest of the mm. film, that it's sort of almost like a giant sarcastic explanation point, almost, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, um, uh, Dan, let's, let's have a, a quick little listen here to, to the Brahms.
So, I mean, that that really is such a... I mean, we've been listening to all of this music and then you play that at the Mm. end. And, I mean, uh, do you guys feel that it's almost, like you said, that sarcastic Mm. exclamation point, but, you know, there's almost like a bit of a circus-ish nature (laughs) to it. It feels like, Mm. hey... Like a carnivalist. Yeah, Yeah, carnivals. But, but, Mm. you know, because of what you've seen, Mm. that, that juxtaposition and that silence, you know. I mean, does this allow the audience to breathe again when they're walking out of the the cinema is that perhaps what this why this works or mm. i don't know what do you think i need to work this out Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i feel like i've seen this ending so many times and i still don't really have an answer i mean i think it just opens up more questions yeah sure because it feels yeah. like for daniel he's conquered one of his 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 biggest uh, he he's conquered over one of his biggest um, enemies in mm. in Eli, but of course he's now made himself so vulnerable in that um, well he's, he's he's murdered yet another person, mm. um, and this time he's probably not going to get away with it. Yeah, and he's already a wreck, and you just wonder like the, the next film is like what happens to Daniel Plainview? Mm. So I think that there is that sarcasm in there, that irony. Mm. What do yeah. you reckon, Dan? No, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's definitely, at least in part, sarcastic. It's almost like a ta-da, like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, is this, it's almost like, yeah, is this what you wanted? Is this the resolution that you wanted? Because mm. it's sort of the only resolution that these, that these characters in this world and these forces are going to be able to provide you with. Yeah, right. It's sort of like, you know, here we've set up these, these characters which are, uh, and definitely I don't think the film functions anywhere near close to entirely as allegory. I think there are allegoric elements in it. There, it's a, it's a, it's a story about these characters and these people, I think, first and foremost. But broadly speaking, you could say, well, you know, is this 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 is the conclusion of of of, of corporations versus religion, mm. um, and you know, at the foundation of American society, and like, ta da, there it is, great, well done, <laughs> have fun, everybody, yeah, um, enjoy going home, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. out of the movie theater. Um, mm. I think, like you said here, it really is a masterstroke because I think if you had finished on the the sort of vibe that a lot of the the Greenwood score was providing up until that point, there would be such a heaviness. And there would, even though that this in some ways, like you you Mm. said, Dan, that points out that perhaps this is not the end and perhaps there's, you know, there's a story (laughs) to to continue after this. But yeah, it does, it there is something about it. It's hard to put your finger on. It's sort of a palate cleanser or it allows you to leave the theatre. I don't know. It's, yeah. you know, yep. gives you permission that, okay, you can go home now. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay, mm. guys, I think that brings us to the end mm-hmm. um, of our analysis of There Will Be Blood. A big thank you to Hugh Brunt for stepping in for Nicholas Buck. Uh, not easy to... Thank you. Very, very jet-lagged, I would imagine, <laughs> having just only landed. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> So, you've done very well. So, we're incredibly thankful for that. And if you at home um, enjoyed yourself, please go ahead and press subscribe on this podcast. If you're, if you're on iTunes, leave us a review. We love, to, we love to hear those reviews. And if there's anyone out there who's heading along to There Will Be Blood on, on Saturday, then tell them about this podcast. Mm. I think it would be a nice little uh, primer, um, especially if you know the movie as well, mm. and be able to sort of discover some new things in that live performance. Um, if you're listening to this after the 5th of August in in 2017, then, you know, you missed it. Too bad. Uh, but, you know, we hope we hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't heard, um, watched this movie before, go out and check it out. Mm. It's a, a really amazing film. But given that is the end, 
I'd like to uh, thank Dan Goldie. Yep, I have a strange craving for a milkshake now, but yeah, let's, <laughs> let's not mention that. And thank you to Hugh Brunt. Thank you. And I'm Andrew Pogson, and this was Art of the Score.